Welcome to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring a neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jake Uckelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we're going to talk about holiday depression. we got Christmas coming up. we got uh, the New Year's uh, coming up. Uh, we have Omicron coming up. Lots to talk about. But before we get to that, we'd like to say, hey, thanks to our Patreon supporters. Outrageous Baking, Tor Talk, EEG and Me, Mara, Sadia M., Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. And then we have Joshua M. at Alternative Behavioral Therapy out in uh, Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Hanukkah to all our uh, Patreon peeps out there. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. Tor Talk wants more people to discover text-to-speech because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. And if you're in Vancouver, Washington, and you need to get a brain checkup, visit Joshua M. at Alternative Behavioral Therapy Neurofeedback Service in Vancouver, Washington. Okay, guys, we have... uh, Holiday depression, New Year's coming up, anxiety. Does that ever make the top list of things that psychologists have to deal with, uh, Skip? Annually, annually. Yeah. And I think expectations, uh, it is a a common theme and has been, and, and I'm not joking, you know, for the 25, 30 years I've been in the field, there's you know, certain expectations around holidays and that they go a certain way and that everybody's joyful and thankful and all those good things. And, you know, then uh, reality kicks in and and you're dealing with all kinds of things that go on the other 11 months of the year. And so, you know, keeping expectations in check, and that doesn't mean you can't, you know, be looking forward to, you know, visiting with family and friends and, and participating in the, uh, in the season, but to, you know, temper things a bit, and, and that you know, general approach or, or just um, idea around, hey, let's keep expectations in check, what, you know, predates the last couple of years we've had here. And so you can add to you know, the, the general air quotes fun uh, that is involved with you know, family and get togethers and, and friends and, and coordinating things and yeah, Black Friday shopping and all that good stuff um, with COVID concerns and worries. And, you know, like most families, they're multi-generational. So what do you do when you have, you know, grandma coming over now that folks are allowed to maybe visit a little bit and, you know, who's vaxxed, who's not, who, who you know, believes in the vax, who doesn't. And, and I'm certainly not trying to, you know, go one direction to the other, just pointing out that, hey, we have an entirely different component that's added to gatherings. In, in general, right? But that when we consider maybe some pressures that are already around holiday um, you know, expectations, it, it just magnifies it. And, you know, it, no kidding, but COVID's magnified most things for the last couple of years. So back to the original question, hey, is there anything that psychologists are talking about? And, and that is certainly there, uh, uh, you know, Tops on the list for the last month and a half, right? Because Thanksgiving uh, is included. The uh, o- Omicron, is that, 
Is that passing up COVID or both? Or Jay and I were talking about it before the show. I, it, you know, specifically, I think it might raise some concerns because it's a, a, a variant. And so, hey, how, how does this actually play out? And then, you know, you're trying to look for some kind of data that supports some position on it. My opinion is that for most of the folks that I'm talking with, it's, it's all the same. It, it, it's more COVID. It, it's more of this giant boulder that's moved into our, our experience and it's still there. So it, you know, if we want to go trauma and, and I'm not necessarily introducing it, but if you want to just talk about, you know, the, the phenomena of trauma and how you can become re-traumatized, it's basically a remembering or a rejoining of a way that you responded to something that's happening, right? It's more of the same here. So if we call it something else, that's fine. Um, you know, technically, and, and if scientists are identifying different strains that, you know, qualify or, or necessitate calling it something different, that's fine. On my end of the thing uh, of this, you know, impact is it's, it's more of the same. People are responding to something that is being reacted to right both both kind of socially but also interpersonally in in the same manner like hey do we got to do this distancing thing still it, it it it's just reigniting uh the practices that were put in state uh, or place sorry that you know kind, kind of led to these emotional reactions over time so again i'm repeating myself but it's it's kind of more the same pete right it's just it it, it, it it's keeping on keeping on right is it the front left part of the head? Remember, I'm just the layman here, but uh, for the new techs that are coming on, is there something going on in the in the front left? Uh, well, Which, in fact, uh, we we do end up seeing uh, depression as a an imbalance frontally, but you don't just have boohoo, I'm sad depression. There's also a motivation, lack of initiation as a presentation. And there are agitated depressions. Depending upon the balance between the frontal hemispheres, you end up with a different presentation. But, you know, we have to remember that, that uh, the, the virus isn't an invasion from Greece. Uh, we, we've gotten all these Greek letters. Uh, we've got half the damn alphabet here. Uh, but uh, the, the, this is, um, unfortunately, uh, for, for many, um, uh, going to end up being... Uh, a final chapter in their existence. Um, and, and for a lot of people, it's a near miss. Um, on top of seasonal depression and burnout from the virus and, and the shutdown of the economy and economic distress and depression, we have seasonal affective depression. And, you know, especially Skip up in Alaska, I mean, there, there's parts of Alaska that don't see sun for a few months. Uh, you know, the, if you, you get up far enough, enough north, you don't end up with sun for a while. So uh, seasonal affective disorder ends up being a really major negative influence on mood. Uh, you, you do need to end up having a certain amount of sunlight in order to uh, end up uh, escaping that. And although there are light panels and things like that, there's nothing quite like being able to walk outside, hit, get hit in the face with a nice bright you know, um, morning sun and uh, getting out in nature. And unfortunately, 
uh, knee deep in snow. Uh, and I understand that there are some people that are going to end up with you know, roof deep snow over the next few days in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska and Canada. So, um, you know, it's getting snowed in is something I grew up with. I grew up in Fargo that uh, actually went out the second story window one time where I get out of the house, uh, broke into the garage, busting the window to get into the garage because you couldn't open anything, uh, fired up the snowblower and sent it through the drift that had covered the garage door. So, you know, ha having uh, snow covering the first story of the house was not an unheard of experience in Fargo. So, uh, you know, uh, tis the season to be jolly, but you, you know, when you got to jump out the second story of the window and bust the window of the garage, it's not exactly the jollies. Um, and, uh, the, but the expectation is there. Um, uh, I know many people who have lost uh, people. Anybody that loses somebody anywhere near the holiday, the holiday is the the recollection of the loss and it's revisited. And as you know, losses fade over time, people get over these things, but they're revisited again and again. Uh, uh, so, so again, tis the season. Uh, if you can be jolly, so much the better. Uh, but uh, feel free to feel the way you feel. Uh, uh, honest emotion uh, should be expressed. Uh, hell, I, I crack cartoons, so you know, don't. <laughs> the, the, it's, uh, I, I, uh, I try, try at the drop of a hat. So, any emotion that comes up is absolutely fine to be expressed. Um, you, you shouldn't feel like you have to squelch an emotion around me, at least. Um, the people that are uh, depressed about growing older or aging, you got anything for them? <laughs> why, why are you asking Jay that? Why are you asking me? <laughs> it seems like you're piling on or something. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, I, I actually uh, do carry around all sorts of stuff. So yeah. let's, um, let's share uh, a, a quick run through. What does your brain look like when you're one month old? Ooh. You know, uh, um, it, it it's slow. You don't have alpha. You have delta. And hey, Jay, Jay, let me jump in super quick. Like, all right, so that means, you know, you got a one-month-old wired up. Uh, oh, yeah, how yeah. How is that yeah. happening? How's, how's that happening? Who's collecting that data? Uh, the, this is, in fact, collected by uh, a customer of mine who had, uh, the occurrence to uh, hook up a one-month-old uh, for a hospital circumstance, um, and you know, uh, it, it's it's basically all slow content now, yeah. uh, uh, and an occasional electro pop and some slight movement, but the the you don't expect to see background alpha, and you see transients in it that are, you know, visually kind of exciting but this is just a one month old you know pure and simple and you know babies sometimes have uh, febrile seizures or um uh, look like they're 
uh, you know, something going on, a twitch or something like that. And uh, parents will sometimes bring them into a hospital for an evaluation. Um, th this one has essentially normal variation. Uh, it, it's not uh, an abnormal one. It's just a, a, a one month old, uh, just to see how slow things actually are. Now, um, we can close that out. Here's a two-year-old, eyes closed, <laughs> which is always a task for the two-year-old in and of itself. Right. But you can see this is 500 microvolts per, per division here. A, a centimeter is essentially 500 microvolts. You can see the size of the EEG here. They're starting to get some slightly faster frequencies, but at two, you, you're not expected to have resting state background alpha posteriorly. This is still delta and now theta. Uh, and, you know, things are maturing, but you still don't have the thalamocortical uh, system wired up and, and running. Uh, and But these are important periods of time. You know, in, in your first year of life, the face-to-face -face interaction with the parent and ends up uh, uh, helping to uh, mature and develop the neurochemistry of the brain. Uh, here's a, an interesting paper I would uh, suggest. Uh, and <laughs> this is an old version of scanning. Uh, uh, the, the, this is essentially Alan Shore uh, from uh, UCLA Psychiatry uh, uh, Department. And uh, they're talking about the mother and baby face-to-face -face and the development of the uh, attachment. Uh, so attachment disorders, uh, 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 all, all sorts of uh, important uh, psychopathology uh, potentially being developed by inappropriate face-to-face uh, -face experience um, and the later life development of social emotions, uh, um, so uh, th there's some very good literature about development as well. Uh, let's look at the other end of things. Uh, here's a 72-year-old. That's, you know, where'd all the voltage go? <laughs> well, um, this is 70 microvolts is the size of one of these instead of 500 on the, uh, the two-year-old. There's beta CZ is a bit of an insomnia issue. But their primary complaint was working memory uh, loss. As you age, you start to kind of lose the ability to remember factoids, um, yeah, name of something, uh, the, somebody's name, some, some name of a place, uh, pulling out words that you know you know, you just can't kind of pull them up. Uh, well, this left frontal and temporal waveform that you see here, this is a slow edge of alpha, left frontal temporally. This is the spot that ends up being necessary for working memory, word finding, verbal fluency. Uh, that, that's the fault in this EEG on top of the insomnia. So uh, uh, where did all the voltage go? Well, as, as we uh, start to um, uh, maturationally decline, this is aging not in a good way. Uh, uh, you can end up having localized changes. And again, 
the waveform that you see left frontal temporal isn't the so sort of waveform that you see back here. This is a slower left frontal temporal uh, feature. Now, uh, some people, when they're aging, end up running into pathology, not just the normal aging, you know, starting to lose a little bit of uh, recall. Uh, this, uh, these are calibrations. Uh, they're done at the beginning of uh, uh, medically oriented uh, studies. Uh, uh, they, they show you that the amplifiers are all working the same, uh, that the amplification, how, how much deviation uh, is equivalent. Uh, if you change your filters, the shape of them changes. So the doctor that's looking at it can tell what the filter settings are and you, 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 uh, the, the sharpness of the, the peak and the, how rapid it declines are high frequency and low frequency settings. So um, as we get into the EEG here, uh, th this is somebody who's got cerebrovascular insufficiency. Let me get this into a proper montage. Um, uh, you can see in one second here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, just barely in the alpha band. And as we scroll through the EEG, and I'm going to open up the low frequencies here because this person has a phenomenon called cerebrovascular insufficiency. See this little moment where you've got a delta wave in the temporal areas bilaterally for a few seconds, and then it goes flat for the rest of it? this moment, the brain has got insufficient flow. And the, the delta that you see in the temporal areas here is an abnormal feature that's consistent with cerebrovascular insufficiency. Now, commonly that's an irregular heartbeat. You know, if you've got atrial fibrillation, uh, preventricular contractions, PBCs, PATs, Wolf Parkinson White, I mean, there's all sorts of cardiac rhythm disturbances that when the heart's not beating properly, it's not pumping properly. And if the pump doesn't work, you don't get it up to the top floor here. So um, it, uh, th these intermittent episodes of rhythmic slow content in the temporal lobe uh, end up being the correlation uh, with an insufficient supply. Now, uh, it, uh, th there's some big slow sways of eye movement that have gone by as well. Uh, but uh, uh, intermittent temporal uh, rhythmic, uh, very slow delta activity that's gone by in this case uh, a couple of times ends up being the hallmark of uh, cerebrovascular insufficiency. The other thing is we, we counted a, 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 an eight, but, um, and we haven't done any really fancy cleanup, but I'm going to toss up the spectra on this. And colorize the spectra and traditional band definitions. The alpha band is in yellow. You can see that the alpha here is sticking into the theta band a little bit. And there's also delta in the temporal areas and the, the temporal delta larger on the left side. This is again, cerebrovascular insufficiency, but the, the fact that the peak of alpha is okay but the range of alpha is not. Uh, cognitive decline 
ends up being seen associated with a slowing of alpha. Roy John at NYU, uh, who's you know passed, oh, goodness, too many years ago now. Um, uh, Roy basically did a nice study along with uh, Leslie Pritchett in the 1990s, where they looked at the alpha frequency at PZ in uh, aging individuals uh, who were uh, uh, complaining of cognitive impairment. The, the, the first blush of something's not right and they go to the doctor. At that point, if the alpha was still in the alpha band, two years later, they were at home with some assistance. But if the, the peak of the alpha was actually in the theta band, two years later, they were in full care. And you can see the, the tip of the alpha over here is at 7.81, just a hair outside of the alpha band and this slower alpha in the temporal area. Again, that's where the peak is over here. Uh, suggests that there's a decline going on here. Uh, uh, again, as you have cerebrovascular insufficiency, uh, the brain is going to slow uh, due to uh, degradation. I mean, it needs blood flow to maintain healthy cellular function. And this brain is slightly slow. It's on its way towards uh, cognitive impairment. And the cerebrovascular insufficiency suggests that uh, the supply line uh, is either being interrupted by a bad rhythm or uh, the carotid and vertebrobasal arteries uh, may be impaired with some flow dynamics, not right. But at this point, we need to end up looking outside of the brain uh, to make sure that the blood supply uh, and uh, uh, cardiac function are adequate. Now, they have lifeline screenings. You can get a carotid ultrasound and a vertebral base or ultrasound and ultrasound of the heart. Um, and and they'll, they'll check with a Doppler to make sure you've got good flow through your legs and stuff. And, and it's fairly inexpensive. Um, they, they do it as a commercial service. Uh, as maybe 25 minutes of a text time, they put some goop on the end of a ultrasound probe and, and uh, scan using Doppler. Or they can measure the flow really quite precisely. So uh, um, cerebrovascular insufficiency is a is is another one of the kinds. Now, um, uh, it, this is um, uh, looking at gender differences. This is age, you know, uh, uh, across the bottom. So this is. Uh, for five years old on up to 18 years old. So this is the developmental trajectory. These are different EEG clusters. And um, you can see uh, the difference between male and female. So uh, cluster two is a particular EEG uh, feature. And um, th these are the EEG frequencies. This is the age of the patient. And you can see um, uh, at specific ages, there's a significant difference between male and female uh, and at what frequency it's at. There's a, an alpha and beta difference um, in the uh, early teens that differentiates males and females. Uh, there's slow content and fast content uh, that, that differentiate in the alpha and gamma and beta content. So uh, uh, again, 
the uh, male and female are not the same through the developmental trajectory from age five to 18. And we, uh, we also have uh, at, at this point, we've got a, an anoxic coma. So when it's no longer working at all and you're, you've slipped into a coma, uh, uh, the, the flattening and then the bursting uh, happens. Uh, the, the, the anoxic coma has created a toxic or metabolic uh, encephalopathy. And these are called triphasic waves, up, down, up, down, and widespread triphasics. Uh, this is, a, again, a toxic or metabolic encephalopathy. Um, the bursts and then suppression uh, that you see, the flattening and then bursting and then flattening and then bursting. The burst suppression type pattern like this uh, uh, augurs a, a, a grave prognosis. Uh, and uh, basically, this is the kind of a pattern you see shortly before you end up in a grave. So um, uh, we, we, we've got EEGs from uh, birth to just prior, prior to death. Uh, I didn't pull out a flatline EEG. They're not terribly dynamic. Um, uh, they're, they're just kind of flat. Um, uh, I, I do uh, suggest that uh, there's also a, uh, uh, a, a very nice uh, new document out uh, uh, showing male and female difference uh, as, as well as age. Uh, that's a review of the uh, Korean uh, database that has been gathered. Um, this, this publication is a brand new publication. It's just out um, the 17th of December. So this is, uh, this is science so fresh, it's still fresh. hot, you know? Yeah, um, uh, frontiers in Neuroscience and this is basically a full description of the database that they collected. Uh, they collected the data for over a decade. Uh, doctors Kim and Kang are the two principals involved in this. And then uh, obviously uh, uh, other folks have uh, done a, a lot of the write-up here as well. So um, we, we, you can look at the detail of how they've constructed their database. It's extremely well done. Um, they did not cut any corners. Uh, there's a lot of kids, uh, be, you know, uh, under 10 years old. There's a lot of kids in their teens. And the number, total number of people in the groups drops down because there's less maturational change through the developmental uh, years here. There's a lot of change here. So you need more people in each small group in order to characterize the, the developmental trajectory in these very young years. Um, but here's male and female, young group and adult. And here's the differences, p-values. Look at the females in the EEGs here and the males in the EEGs here in the adult group. Adult, male, and female. Although, you know, there's some stuff at the top of the head here. There's a dramatic difference between the two, and statistically, it's extremely significant. So, um, you know, all of the databases that said, well, they looked the same, so we combined them. Well, 
they don't look the same. I wouldn't combine them. Um, I advised the Koreans as they were going into this process over, well over a decade ago now that they should keep their male and female data separate because we know there's a difference uh, in the brain structure, uh, the, um, the, uh, the symmetry between hemispheres, the extent of the corpus callosum, uh, that uh, males should have colossal envy, uh, females have a well-developed corpus callosum and males have a spindly little thing. So um, we, we really do have um, now the ability to differentiate male and female that we did not have before in a quantitative way. And it's a shame we didn't have it because there are significant differences. Um, here in the development, uh, the, the upper line is a female, the lower line is male. Uh, this is the the, the means and standard deviation scatter. Uh, uh, delta in a very young age is high. And as you mature, it drops down. Uh, here's theta starting very high, dropping down. Alpha starting a bit lower, peaking around 10 years old or so, uh, you know, puberty, pre-puberty where your voltages are big. And then it drops down across age. Beta similarly rises up. And it drops down, and then it goes back up as you age. The fast activity ends up increasing with age, going down, going down, going down, going up. And females dramatically more. Now, the gamma in females is also really dramatically different than males. Uh, so uh, this is just a glimpse uh, at their database. Um, uh, these are the uh, uh, norms for different clinical groups. I would urge you to go ahead and look at the uh, uh, publication. This is, um, uh, uh, this is the newest uh, normative database that's out there and it meets a very high level of scientific scrutiny. Uh, and again, uh, uh, this, this is fully published in all the detail of how they collected things, what the criteria were um, and uh, they even after people's data was collected, uh, they actually excluded some uh, be because of uh, 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 outlier findings. So this is an extremely well-constructed normative reference database that keeps male and female uh, and age all segregated. So um, I, I'd urge you to you know, take a solid look at this. Again, brand new publications, Frontiers in Neuroscience. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that, that's uh, the kind of stuff I pulled up on aging and uh, I figured it was, uh, uh, probably well worth looking at. Uh, remember as you age, uh, treat those uh, who are older and younger uh, with care, uh, because, um, the ones that are older already have the experience you're going through and the younger ones will get there at some point. So. Uh, don't don't be too hard on anyone. Jay, I have a question, and I'll try to I'll try to synthesize it as I go along here. It, it includes a few things that you mentioned, and then some others that I just thought of. Right, that popped into my head. So when you were when actually when you showed your that the study from '96 and the scan, you know, pre digital. Uh, you know, gathering of data, right? It just reminded me of some things from back in those days, and I remember a study 
that was passed around literally, uh, you know, in, in grad school. And it was on the association between colic and sociopathy or any social behaviors and, you know, correlation, not causation, of course, but the idea of the study was, and the folks in the study were uh, convicted, um, you know, felons of certain crimes. And so, you know, it's folks that had been in prison. And so they qualified for a lot of reasons for diagnoses of antisocial um, behavior patterns, right? And so they they got a chance to talk to those folks, and then got a chance to connect with their families and mothers in particular. And so, yes, there was a preponderance of colic. The idea here was that there's something that happens in early development and connection that when you have something like colic, which basically results in a um, you know, repulsion of connection, right? And and then mothers were having difficulties accessing their motherliness, right? Because you got this, you know, baby that you can't soothe, all your best tricks just aren't working. And ultimately it led to frustrations. And I'm, I'm you know, simplifying like crazy, but you can probably get the picture here that if there's an infant that can't be soothed and a mother that is just burnt out because everything she's trying is not working, they have this separation, right? So that, that was the conclusion. And so there was just a lot of discussion around uh, this phenomena that happened and, and it's slightly chicken or egg, right? In that, hey, you know, is there colic and, and potential for antisocial behaviors because of neuroanatomical development or, you know, ability to develop or not develop, right? Yeah. And so it, it's which end of that. So all this is leading to kind of a question to you, but, and, and hopefully a discussion and maybe another show at some point, but this early connection development and what that fosters, and I am referring to mirror neurons and just that, that ability to, you know, incorporate um, these cares that are given, you know, safety and nurturance and all these things that allow our, our brains to maybe settle on a little bit and do other things instead of continually trying to scan the environment for these fundamental needs. So I'm hoping we can discuss just how that process happens. But then since you brought up the gender differences, all of the people in this study were males. And so there, there are females that are diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder or, or sociopathy, you know, back in the day, but it's different, right? It's different probably for social reasons and, and the way males are and trained to behave and women not. So there's just another area of potential discussion if you want, but mostly I'm, I'm wondering what you might be able to add to this early period, you know, zero to two maybe of connection and, and what happens neuroanatomically that's important for us as a species. Well, I have to say that uh, Alan Shore's uh, uh, work ends up detailing in almost painful detail uh, that entire process. You know, the face-to-face mother or father and baby end up uh, uh, triggering the mirror neuron, which, uh, you know, if the baby makes a face, the parents mimic it back, and the babies start to learn emotion. And if you don't have that mirror neuron engagement, you can end up not understanding emotion. So, uh, and there's a critical period, the first year or so, your primary emotions end up getting learned. Now, social emotion, uh, shame and guilt are learned a little later. 
most of your primary emotion ends up having a right frontal development. Um, but those are primary emotions. You're built in with some, uh, uh, some emotions. Fear uh, is one of them. If you have a baby uh, and, and they, uh, they have what's called a visual cliff, uh, uh, they're on a glass uh, top and the, there's a solid uh, piece underneath the glass and there's an edge where it drops away. Well, the baby won't crawl across the visual cliff. I mean, you know, there's a certain amount of, uh, 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 they, they perceive innately that that's not a safe thing to go over the cliff. Um, if you put a snaky, wiggly thing uh, they, they revulse back. It's not just a, an item of interest. They actually have innate uh, fear of snakes, um, as do a lot of animals. So we've got some built-in fear. Uh, uh, the, the primary emotions do end up getting inculcated with the, the mother or father face-to-face with the infant. They also soothe the infant face-to-face. They perceive the emotion. So uh, they, they train emotion, uh, they help stabilize, and they literally trigger the neurochemical development of the right frontal neural networks. And Alan Shore details that in, again, almost painful detail. It's not an easy read, but it's a damn good read. Uh, I, I, I do suggest uh, going through his work uh, carefully. It's not, like I say, don't sit down and expect to breeze through it in a few hours. It, this, you, you'll, you'll read a page and scratch your head and look back at it and go, what was that? You know, oh, <laughs> you, you catch it second time through, it'll all click, you know. So this, this, is, a, this, this is one to ponder. But uh, um, social emotion of shame and guilt uh, basically end up being determined also by face-to-face contact. If, if the infant is shunned, uh, they, they can't re-establish uh, the face-to-face relationship. Um, it, it's disturbing to them. And uh, again, that's learned at an, a next level up in age, age two, three. Uh, where you actually have to learn the social emotion. Uh, so shame and guilt ends up actually being learned left temporally, not right frontally. So he, he'll go through all of that in all of his work. But I, I would suggest that it's a good read for people who want to learn about attachment, uh, how it's developed, how it can go awry, uh, and and also to a certain extent, uh, how, how to step in and repair some of this. Uh, and that's not easy. Uh, uh, critical periods when they're missed in development sometimes can't be recovered. And the, the, the work I've seen in uh, psychopaths in prison end up showing right frontal problems um, in, in the EEG, quite often a slow feature right frontally. So um, yeah, it's, it, it, if that area doesn't develop, you may never have the ability to have normal emotional relationships, and you may end up being a psychopath. So, um, it, it, you know, <laughs> Shore's work is critical. And nowadays we have all sorts of attachment um, uh, uh, therapy that's been developed well, 
really solidly developed on the neuroscience. Bessel van der Kolk's uh, work, uh, he's a, a, a psychiatrist and uh, has focused on developmental trauma and attachment and, and the, the medical underpinnings of it. So I, I, would, I would suggest that at this point, if somebody has an attachment problem, there are actually well-developed therapies that end up having good efficacy. And because of Bessel, neurofeedback is part of that repertoire. I mean, he, he's popularized the use of neurofeedback as a, as a tool within the attachment uh, repair uh, therapeutic world. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of folks that are working in that area. Uh, uh, some of the development has been uh, without the assistance of EGQEG, uh, but at the same time, uh, the, the, there's solid EGQEG uh, evidence, and and uh, uh, Bessel has started to focus the attachment and uh, uh, affect repair world on neurofeedback as a tool. So, anyway, it's it, it's an exciting application because you can really dramatically change the outcome of a life. Um, Years ago, um, I worked with a, a therapist. Unfortunately, he died in a car accident before he could publish. Uh, but we presented his outcome data at an ISNR, or I think maybe SNR, SSNR, one of the versions of the society's name. Um, and and uh, with, with uh, uh, 97 uh, people, so it was not a small study, all reactive attachment disorder. So these are kids who had uh, difficult start, and now th they can't form an attachment bond, and they're like a small hand grenade thrown into a school. You know, they're, uh, uh, they're, they're going to make the classroom that they're in a total chaotic mess. So the school systems don't want them in the school system, and uh, Larry Van Bloom, uh, who, who was controversial, uh, he did something called holding, uh, uh, like that the, they, they squeezed uh, to stabilize and calm. And that Basketball. does work. Yeah, the, the, it does work, but uh, the, you can do it excessively. You know, you get a, uh, you know, Pete laying on a kid and the little kid's going to get kind of like not able to breathe. So you, you've got to watch uh, what's going on with holding therapy. And it was controversial, but at the same time, he had lots of other techniques. He did two or three neurofeedback sessions a day in his little home school. And every rad kid in the entire county was sent to his little home school. And when he got a new one in, he would assign them two or three neurofeedback sessions a day. Now, it took 120, 150 sessions to get them stable, but you weren't doing sleep in between sessions. So the numbers really are, are a bit different. Uh, people using the same technique but doing office visits instead of having a school where they could do multiple per day. And he wasn't charging per session. So it wasn't like he was, you know, uh, ripping money away from the County by doing the training. This is part just, of the curriculum. Part, he was paid to school him, not, yeah. not to do neurofeedback. So, uh, but the, the people got about 60 to 80 sessions about like an autistic kid uh, uh, training uh, uh, duration uh, for people using his technique, but uh, in an office type setting. We found 93% of those 97 kids 
had an anterior cingulate and a right temporal uh, change in the EEG. And the right temporal changes like the PTSD and Asperger's traits that we see, social perception, uh, and the anterior cingulate was the perseverative, over-focus, uh, obsessive, compulsive trait that they, that they had as well. And again, he died, unfortunately, in a, in a, a nasty car accident shortly after we presented that data. So it, it didn't end up getting written up uh, into a journal. But um, it, it was quite effective. And we, we see other people working with attachment, having the same kind of efficacy. Um, uh, they're, they're also working in the right temporal parietal area, uh, uh, like Larry had found. So I've, you know, if there's a kid that has an attachment problem, there is a positive outcome therapy available. Uh, you just have to have a, a therapist that's familiar with the approach. The uh, 72-year-old, how, how do you address uh, dementia with, uh, quote-unquote, brain brightening? I know we only have a, f- you know, a few minutes left, but I'm just curious if you could sure. point to it. Uh, in fact, brain brightening as a term was coined by seniors who ex- experienced Tom Bozinski's work in a project called the Ponce de Leon Project in Florida. Uh, Ponce de Leon, looking for the Fountain of Youth, you know, Florida. Anyway, uh, apparently there's maybe some people still looking for it there. So, um, but we, we, we basically uh, end up trying to slightly speed up the background alpha. Uh, if you train SMR-related frequencies, not centrally, but central parietally, uh, the parietal aspect of that ends up being faster alpha frequencies. Following the training, the seniors coined the term brain brightening. Now, what you're actually doing is changing how many samples per second they're taking of the outside world, your alpha packets perception. So if your alpha is at seven, eight, you're taking seven or eight little snapshots of the outside world. That's not great resolution. Uh, If you speed it up to 10, 11, 12, the faster edge of alpha, you have a much higher resolution. So you see things crisper because it's higher resolution. You see things, colors are brighter memory works. You don't have retrieval problems for words and factoids. So the tip of the tongue phenomenon goes away. Now, his work was back in the 1980s. It was replicated more recently, quite effectively by Christine Palmquist uh, for her uh, a doctoral dissertation. Uh, 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 got a good replica- replication. She actually did uh, QEG uh, pre-post and found the speeding up of alpha was the effect, um, and that uh, it was it was a uh, an effective brain brightening uh, for the seniors who were involved in the study. You know, I I can imagine some Dell Web development somewhere out there, kind of listening in the background, going, "Hmm, maybe we should set up a neurofeedback, you know, center in the Dell Web." I mean, they have all the exercise facilities, shops for metal, shops for wood. They have, you know, everything set up for the seniors. Why not set up a brain brightening thing in your Dell Web Center and and have the people who and they have memory uh, 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 things happening in the in the the Dell Web centers as well. So, you know, it's it's a perfect match. Uh, there, there's really good outcomes. 
I'm surprised that we don't see, you know, uh, senior center EG centers popping up as little tiny franchises or something. If if, if, uh, there you go. If somebody does that, they don't have to pay me for the idea because, <laughs> you know, it's a zeitgeist. It's an idea whose time has come. Uh, the, the technology exists. Um, uh, we, we've, we've got reasonable uh, uh, hardware. It's not overly expensive. I mean, the, the first QEG machine I got was 165000 You could buy a dozen of them for that now. So, you know, um, uh, the, the about how many trainings for the him. seniors? Well, it depends upon uh, where they're starting and how severe their circumstances. But you usually get a fairly solid brain brightening effect and an assistance with the quality of sleep starting in the mid twenties, twenty three, twenty five uh, sessions. You you see significant clinical benefit. Uh, but if you have a very severe circumstance with the you know their their uh, they've lost more capacity than this than somebody next to them. Uh, it's going to take a bit longer with them, but you know, what else do you have to do if you're at a Dell web center? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you know, you, Oh, what, a, you know, I've got a session today. It's something to get out and go do, you know? So uh, it, it isn't like an inconvenience. Oh, shoot. I've got to squeeze one more appointment in uh, it. Yeah, it's, so, if you, it's, so if you do the initial training, how, how often do you have to go back? You know, one of the nice things about neurofeedback is that once you've really got it, you've got it. You know, it's like riding a bicycle. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how many years it's been since you've been on a bike, but uh, I, your father isn't going to have to run along holding the seat next to you. Well, my father's gone. I mean, if he had to hold the seat, I would never be on a bike again. But uh, um you know, you might not be riding with no hands right away uh, like you used to, but you're going to get there real quick. You know, you, you don't lose the skill you've learned. Uh, it's good if you continue to use it. You're going to stay really quite good at it. If you've been on a bike fairly regularly, uh, you don't have to learn how to ride it anymore. So, um, you know, and the studies on neurofeedback with six-month follow-up and 12-month follow-up show actually enhanced skill set. You, you know, you intake to outtake, you know, they, they've gotten this much better. And you think, well, uh, six months from now, it'll get a little bit worse. It'll regress a little bit more like it was in the beginning. No, 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 no. Remember, your dad ran along with the bike and finally he let go and you were riding. But you weren't really good on a bike then. You were just barely able to stand up, stay upright. Uh, you know, two months later, you're jumping curbs, you know, putting stuff in the spokes to make it sound like a motorcycle, you know, uh, you know riding with no hands, showing off, um, you know, it, uh, by six month or 12 month follow-up, people are riding with no hands and showing off. They're, they're not back to halfway how they were in the beginning, still needing somebody to kind of stand there holding the bike up. They're, they've got the skill and neurofeedback gives you a skill. It's not like a massage where you've got to go back and get another massage, uh, you know, and, and nothing against massage. I mean, you know, they're, they're fabulous, but uh, you don't go home with a new skill. You go home with a very nice effect, you know, ah, but, you know, life sets back in and pretty soon that old knot in the shoulder comes back and you got to go for another massage. Well, y y there wasn't a skill learned. Uh, it was a treatment. 
not a training. Neurofeedback is a training, not a treatment. Uh, now, it can be combined with stimulation technology. There's some treatment and training both at the same time in those circumstances. Uh, but uh, um, uh, it, you wouldn't have to keep going back necessarily once you've got a good new skill. For people who are trying to forestall dementia, on the other hand, you should continue to do the treatment. They're on a downhill decline. You can forestall further decline with treatment, but if you stop the treatment, there's a precipitous decline. So if, if they're in process of you know, losing their marbles, uh, as they say, um, if, if, you're, uh, if, you've, if you've got progressive loss of cognitive function with dementia, uh, you can forestall further loss, but you're probably not going to fully normalize, but you can forestall further loss and kind of hold, get them in a holding pattern. And um, it, uh, it, if you can catch them early enough, you can maintain more function. Uh, if you catch it really late, you can kind of get a holding pattern, but you're probably not going to normalize anybody at that point. Thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tor Talk, EEG and Me, Mara, Sadia M, and Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. And Tor Talk wants more people to discover text-to-speech because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. Hey, don't forget Joshua M at Alternative Behavioral Therapy, uh, neurofeedback service in Vancouver, Washington, neurofeedbackcare.com. Hey, do you have an idea for a to- topic? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail and link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee and Patreon slash neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. <laughs> hey, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays. Cue the music.